Dr. Michael D. Williams became the eighth president of Faulkner University, located in Montgomery, Alabama in 2015. His professional career began with jobs at Martin Marietta Aerospace. His first entry into higher education began at Ohio Valley University, an enrollment where he served as director of admissions. He then returned to his alma mater, Harding University, where he served for 28 years in a variety of roles before coming to Faulkner University. At Harding, William served as Director of Admissions, Assistant Vice President of Enrollment Services, and Vice President of Advancement. I asked Mike if he would be willing to talk about the challenges of gender equity within today's enrollment landscape. Faulkner University competes in the NAIA in Division I, which means they can offer full scholarships to the athletes on their sports teams. As of 2018-19, they have 263 male athletes and 96 female athletes a percentage breakdown that makes it 73% male and 27% female athletes. The Faulkner undergraduate student body is 58% female and 42% male, putting them out of compliance with prong one of Title IX. Faulkner is one of thousands of schools out of compliance with prong one of Title IX. And let me also state that there are two other ways to come into compliance with Title IX. Still, Mike's frankness to discuss the challenges institutions face in meeting this federal requirement while in the beginning of a long decline in graduating high school seniors nationwide is the topic of today's podcast. And Mike Williams, thanks so much for joining me on our podcast today. We're working with a little bit different audio setup, so hopefully this will be clear enough for our listeners. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Karen. Thank you. I really appreciate you being such a great catalyst for these important conversations uh, regarding collegiate athletics and and, uh, higher education. So you just said something to me that that really sort of will set us off. Why don't you, if you don't mind repeating what you just said to me? Well, I think uh, one of the things that uh, I was really caught off guard, I've been in the presidency here at Faulkner for uh, four and a half years now. Uh, one of the things that I was really quite surprised is how much of my uh, week is really consumed in collegiate athletics. Uh, it really is a, an important facet, and uh, it's a part of uh, really everyday uh, decision making. And uh, really was caught off guard by it. So, uh, so this conversation, this broader conversation about where are we going, where are we at, is really uh, important to me. And I know a lot of my colleagues. In the, in the president's office. Well, let's talk a little bit about Faulkner. Uh, tell us about the demographics where you draw students from, uh, how much, what percentage of your population on campus are athletes, and those kinds of things. Yeah, we're uh, uh, total enrollment is about 3,400, but that's traditional, that's adult education, that's uh, our law school, everything. We have about uh, 1,500 uh, undergrad and uh, we are an NAI school in athletics, and about 46% of our uh, undergraduate population participate in intercollegiate athletics. And so it's an important uh, cohort uh, in our institution. Right. And you have about uh, 15 sports. Do I have that right? Uh, yes. Okay. Okay. And um, you and I talked about uh, your Equity in Athletics Disclosure Act. And for some folks who don't know what this is, this is an annual report 
that the Department of Education requires every school, two-year and four-year across the country, to file that indicates their participation ratios, their revenues and expenses, um, the coaching um, situation with regarding to full-time and part-time coaches. Uh, they even get into gender a little bit. Uh, and it looks like you've got on your EADA, uh, you've got the following sports. So you've got baseball for men, basketball for men and women, football for men, golf for men and women, soccer for men and women, softball for women, and volleyball for women. And that gives you about 263 participants on the men's side and 98 on the women's side. And uh, when the EADA looks at your full-time enrollment undergraduate, uh, you guys have cited that you have about 1,742 uh, full-time undergraduates. So, but the, the unique part about that is while you have a lot of men on the, on the athletic side, you actually have more women on the student side. So talk a little bit about that. Well, I think, uh, you know, obviously we're trying to think about how we position the institution and uh, it's been a great commitment to the, of the institution for a long time to engage in intercollegiate athletics. It's, we feel like it's an important part of, of the development of, of the students that attend here. And, uh, but I, and I think we've really tried to create a, a sense of equity. And, uh, but one of the things that's really uh, perplexing to us as we think about going forward, and it really throws ratios, is football. <laughs> Just because the, the numbers, uh, uh, that really does create some inequalities as it relates to the total number of, of uh, student-athletes. And, uh, and how do we go forward with football without uh, diminishing some of our long-standing uh, participation in other sports or have the investment to make in additional sports for women. So football is an interesting uh, dynamic because it does attract a lot of male students to your campus, a lot of athletes to your campus, which in some, for some institutions has been used to offset the trends of more and more women enrolling in college. How long have you guys had a football program? Uh, this is, I think, our 14th year in football, and that was absolutely one of the considerations of that uh, the administration at the time was uh, really attracting uh, more male students, and, uh, and it was a, a very much a strategic enrollment uh, decision. Although we are in Alabama, I mean, football <laughs> is in the South. I mean, there's just no, no ifs, ands, or buts. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it is what it is, and power, uh, football is a, a a powerful cultural uh, part of the community. So you, you have 126 on your football team as of last year, and you have um, 39 men on your soccer team and 29 women on your women's soccer team. Again, two two larger sports, and then you've got another large sport, which is baseball, another 70. So, again, yeah. it seems like you've, you've really done a great job of attracting men to your campus who want to play sports. So I guess the question would be, going forward, knowing the demographic shifts that, that are occurring, knowing the financial challenge of investing in athletics and the, and the rising costs and expenses around that, 
Um, I'm not sure what your travel budgets look like in the NAIA, but there's a lot of headwinds coming forward to you. And, and what do you and your colleagues in your conference, uh, what do you think about all this? Oh, I think I think there is a lot of anxiety. I mean, a lot of anxiety. And, and uh, I mean, just in the last uh, month, I can't tell you how many conversations that I've had uh, that relate to that anxiety. As schools have itchy feet about conference alignment, they're concerned about growing travel budgets. They do see a uh, a stealing because uh, many of us who have pretty robust athletic programs, to be honest with you, part of that mix that has seventy baseball players is also a, a JBT. Right, uh, right. Yeah, that's a, that's a great opportunity for uh, student participation in JV. But the reality is that many of those uh, baseball players find out really quickly uh, that uh, to participate in NAIA, and we're, we're a top 10 uh, baseball program in the country, in NAIA, they probably won't touch the field, and they get that sense pretty quickly. <laughs> and so, you know, I think there's the, the thought that we're going to grow it is just a pipe dream. And the reality is it's, it's uh, Sustainability, even at our current levels, are really kind of pushing it. We're actually pulling back our football program, not because it really makes great financial sense, but it's just culturally uh, we need to we need to pull off the gas pedal. It's just really too hot. So, give us a couple of examples of the things you might be pulling back on. Uh, well, I think uh, so. Yeah, one hundred twenty-seven football players. Uh, that, that means that there's a number of football players that aren't going to touch the field. Right. Now, now number 127 ranked player on the Faulkner team, he believes he's going to be all conference. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's a, I, I think there's an ethical dilemma there that, that says also that we're going to try to create opportunity and participation, but we also have to, uh, you know, be realistic with uh, the, our student-athletes as far as their opportunity to participate and uh, and how that plays out if you have a student-athlete who comes and maybe you're, you're very transparent about his ability that he'll probably be in a JV-type team, uh, but uh, does he have ears to hear? And if once he gets that, hits that wall that recognizes, wow, the level – of competition here is much higher than I uh, expected and much higher than I could perform at. Now, what do I do? You know, do I stay involved and enroll at Boston University and get my degree? Am I suddenly looking for another option athletically? And, you know, all the, the, the tension and anxiety that puts in that for us, we'd like to reduce some of that. But at the same time, um, we, like every other college in America, uh, are using athletics strategically uh, to advance our purpose. And as we pull back, there are some implications for that, uh, especially on the financial side. Now, Faulkner is an NAIA Division One institution. Do you have all of your programs competing at the Division One level, or do you have some at Division Two, et cetera, et cetera? They're all at Division One. Okay. So there's a financial yeah, commitment they, there. Yeah. The NAI is in the process of actually merging 
D2 and D1 together. Uh, and it's part of this uh, really sustainability going forward to uh, try to meld those two institutions together and make some compromise as far as uh, number of scholarships per sport and things like that. Basketball has been at least the first time where we're, we're trying to merge those together. Right. And that will go in, uh, into uh, effect next year. One of the things that some programs have been able to do over the years to offset the numbers in football is to add rowing on the women's side. I don't suspect you have a river anywhere nearby, do you? Well, we actually do have a river uh, nearby, but uh, I, I don't know uh, who we would compete <laughs> yes. row. Right, right. What? Who else has that? That's always one of the dilemmas. People would love yeah. to add different sports, but who do you compete against? Yeah, and I, and I think that I, I've listened to some of your other uh, conversations with other higher-end leaders and talking about, for instance, the lacrosse. Well, lacrosse is, is mushrooming around the country, but it, it's slow to, to pick up in, uh, in the South. And, you know, as, that, as it grows in the high schools and the colleges, I think that creates a, another opportunity. But right now, if we offered lacrosse, we'd be a, a conference of one. Yeah, that gets boring after a while, I would think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so just to kind of bring this around full circle. So in addition to struggling with what's the ethically right number of people to have on your team with regards to realistic playing time and things like that, you've also got to think about the expense side of having large teams. You know, you've got uniforms and food costs and equipment costs and coaching costs. How do you balance all that out? Well, I, I think that I think that's part of it. I think uh, you know, as we might look as an observer, even at the Power Five, where there's an arms race, the reality is that that arms race trickles down to every you know uh, uh, sector in, in collegiate athletics. And I think uh, you know we may be in the NEI, but we're you know positioning ourselves as a, as a top in a high school. Well, that, that comes with an investment cost. And, uh, you know, as an institution, we're trying to say, where where is that line where we feel like the investment exceeds uh, some of the return? And the reality is that most of our uh, student-athletes, you know, this is their last hurrah. They're going to hang up their cleats at the end of, of this time. And so... Uh, for us, it's also coming back, centering back to this idea that athletics is an extension of the classroom. It is about personal development. It is what what is learned between the stripes that you can't learn anywhere else. You know, those kinds of development pieces, and that, that shapes investment. It also shapes the types of coaches. Um, you know, I think uh, those things... Um, Concern me. It also, I, I guess, at the NEI level, and I, it would be true at the Division II level as well. I was in an institution for 28 years at D2. And one of the things that we find is that, the, you know, our coaching staff typically uh, are looking, you know, as most of us are, for career opportunities in the future. Right. So they're going to make choices regarding their own personal leadership that positions them well for the next level. Well, that can really work against the, the model that the institutions put in place, you know, to the point where uh, 
you know, if we're just a, uh, a launching pad for your career, we may not be the best spot for you. Right, right, right. And so, therefore, I think that's why I think my colleagues and I, at every level at Collegiate Athletics, we have to really step back and say, where is this really headed? And how does that shape not just the recruitment of student athletes, but really the coaches, but to be honest with them and transparent with them as far as is this a good fit? Um, we had a, a coaching change in football two years ago. And here we are at an NAI school, and we had over 100 unsolicited applicants for their coaching job. Wow. And I mean, these were coordinators at, at mid majors and D2 schools all over the country. These were not high school coaches thinking, well, I'll go coach at college. These were already existing coordinators. And so they're looking at Faulkner's, wow, that's a chance to be a head coach. And we realized we're not the last stop. <laughs> right. You know, well, if I have a head coach who views us purely as a, uh, as a, uh, a link in the chain, you know, he may make choices regarding student recruitment efforts that really are outside of uh, where we want to go initially. Right. And not only that, you know, coaches, many of them are very entrepreneurial. So they may start other ways of raising revenue for their program or raising money to cover expenses that may not be consistent with what, um, you know, Faulkner wants to do, camps and clinics, but also, you know, you know, they have the whole industry of how you travel with your team. Do you travel in vans versus buses versus charter airplanes? I mean, a coach could have a very different idea of how that should all go. Yeah, and I think uh, probably the thing that's probably been most uh, perplexing to me uh, just watching it in a real close way here in my work as the president, but even before, is this uh, is really transfer and athletics. Okay. And so, you know, okay, so a student uh, attends an institution at a division higher, and for whatever reason, then makes the choice to either change compete or, for a number of reasons, uh, is no longer eligible to. Uh, compete. Right. And they drop on the division. That's a one, I mean, if, if face value, that's really great when you say, wow, here's a, a, a student athlete that goes to a division one school that doesn't really work out for them the way they hoped and they drop down to a, a, a D2 school and they start this great opportunity and it's a win-win. But that is really the area where students are uh, athletic programs and NEI, D2, smaller D1, where, uh, quite frankly, if you get a coach that's really thinking about their next stop, they're going to pick up as many transfers from an upper level down, and that a lot of times is a complete disaster uh, institutionally. Interesting. That's probably a summarization. I mean, obviously... Uh, the, the transfer opportunities as we watch those change, even at the Power Five, is wonderful. You know, you you, uh, you look at our Heisman Trophy winner uh, who who went to a school that I love, Ohio State, but yet it didn't work out. He goes to LSU and he has opportunity. That's wonderful. But uh, so many times the transfer situation in collegiate athletics doesn't always 
work out culturally. Yeah, I'm I'm actually quite fearful of that across all divisions because I think it's it may upend um, the continuity of small campuses like yourself because so much of athletics is is part of of the student body on your campus, and if you have uh, you know athletes coming and going every every term, that creates a lot of infrastructure challenges as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I mean, obviously, in the Faulkner student body, we have you know, 40 different states represented. But, uh, you know, our football program, which it quite frankly used to do, you know, where we may bring in uh, a previous coaching staff, we had 25 or 30 uh, junior college transfers from the West Coast. That's a really different kind of uh, mix uh, in the students. And we're looking for diversity, uh, but that also can be a recipe for disaster as far as, is it a really a good fit? Right. And if they go, uh, you wonder, did we do anybody a service working through that? Right, and, uh, right, right. So um, to kind of wrap this piece up, do you sit down and have these conversations with your athletic director, with your faculty rep, with any folks uh, besides presidents? Well, I think, to be honest with you, like at time we started the conversation, I was shocked at, at really how much of my life now really is, is thinking about collegiate athletics. And so we've actually been, you know, elevating the conversation, not just between the president and the athletic directors, but really to be thinking at the cabinet level. These are much more strategic decisions. They have implications and and academic mission and co-curricular and just culture. Uh, and so we're actually thinking about it at the, at the cabinet level of the institution. Very interesting. Well, um, maybe we'll come back together again in a few months and maybe you can share with us some of your strategies that you're thinking, because I, as I said to you in person, I think this is one of those situations where this is going to come sneaking up on people really fast and uh, their bottom lines are going to be absolutely affected by it. Absolutely. Well, as you mentioned, we, we see really a, a, a contraction of the higher education market as a whole. You know, the, there is a tendency to look at athletics as, you know, this uh, Hail Mary kind of path. And, and I don't think it is. I think, uh, you know, I, I was a... Uh, uh, Division two athlete college. I love college athlete. I think it offers so much to the the whole university experience. But it is not a hail mary to save the small private institutions of America. Right, right. Uh, there's there's implications uh, for that across the board that I think need to be you know decisions that need to be very intentional. Exactly. And that was Dr. Mike Williams, president of Faulkner University in Montgomery, Alabama. A few weeks ago, you had the chance to hear from Carol Cartwright, a former two-time college president at the NCAA Division I level, about her roles and responsibilities on campus, particularly with the Board of Trustees. 
As part of that conversation, I also asked Carol about her role on the Knight Commission as co-chair, as she has been the co-chair for quite a number of years. I wanted her to tell the audience a little bit more about what her roles and responsibilities are and how the Knight Commission is trying to have an impact on college athletics. Yeah, exactly. No surprises. <laughs> so shifting a little bit <clears throat> to a, a new role, well, a relatively new role that you've had in the last eight, nine, ten years with the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, you've been involved uh, for a long time as a member of the board, and I think this is your fifth year or sixth year as co-chair. Is that correct of the Knight Commission? Uh, yes, I think so. I think it was about in 2014, long about in there, that I became the co-chair. But I've been on the commission since 2001. Wow. Wow. And for those who don't know, the Knight Commission has been around since the late 80s, early 90s, and was founded by a group of presidents that uh, felt they needed to come together and and uh, understand what was happening to college sports at that time, mostly Division One information, uh, D Division One uh, situations. And it is, the Knight Commission has continued to play an important role in advocating for certain areas. And, and Carol, I'm going to let you talk about what those advocacy points are. Right. Uh, the initial Knight Commission was, was in the late 80s, and it really resulted in the restructuring of the NCAA around a new form of governance with uh, presidents uh, more involved. And then it was disbanded. And about 10 years later, the Knight Foundation, uh, ha who had supported the development of the commission, said, did, did our work matter? Let's reconvene, add some new members, and take a look at whether or not we made a difference. Uh, certainly, I think since then, uh, the commission can stand proudly around the difference that it, it has made. There's a, a strong legacy of promoting reforms that put a priority on the education and success of student athletes. Um, for example, it was the Knight Commission that recommended um, institutions had to be on track to graduate at least 50% of the, of the athletes on a team in order to be eligible for postseason play. That's now an NCAA rule, but that came from the Knight Commission. Uh, the Knight Commission also was successful in getting the NCAA to change the basketball revenue distribution formula to reward academic outcomes as well as athletics outcomes. And, so and, the commission continues, sorry. I was just gonna add, that's not insignificant money to institutions. I mean, that could be several hundred thousand dollars up to a couple of million dollars, additional funds that come in for that support. That's correct. As you projected out over the next couple of decades, um, it's significant. And it was done without taking anything away uh, from the variables in the formula. It was done by directing new money toward the academic priorities. The commission continues to evolve um, and is now, uh, while it has great success uh, advocating for academic reforms, is now putting a greater priority on the health and safety of student athletes and on their fair treatment. So uh, we'll continue to advance recommendations and, and do research and convene policymakers around some of the issues that continue to play out in college athletics. And our end goal is to be sure that we have a, 
a comprehensive college sports system in this country that puts the priority on student athletes' education, health, and safety and well-being. That's our that's our big goal. And that that is a big goal. Um, All the clamoring right now is around names, images, and likenesses. And uh, many folks, even uh, just this month, have requested that the federal government get involved with regulating some of these um, issues across state lines. Where does the Knight Commission come down on this? And the Knight Commission has not taken a particular position on the issue since the California legislation and the new uh, federal uh, initiatives that that appear to be underway. But uh, in keeping with its longstanding role of, of doing good background work and due diligence, has convened several uh, meetings on this topic and is currently sharing with groups that are looking into these issues uh, a paper that the commission uh, supported uh, a couple of years ago by Gabe Feldman uh, that talked about ways in which a name, image, and likeness uh, could be managed on an ongoing basis. Mm. So we'll continue to be a, a resource uh, for individuals and legislators, policymakers who are looking into the issue. But I think you can see from our focus on on the fair treatment of student athletes that while we haven't recommended a particular approach, that um, we we want to see fair treatment of the of the student athletes. And of course other students within the institutions uh, do have opportunities that student athletes don't. That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. So as we begin to wind this down, one question really stands out with me is, is in addition to your role, you know, working with the board, overseeing universities, being involved with uh, the Knight Commission for uh, you know, a long time, almost 20 years, you've also held key roles in higher education associations like ACE, the AACU, APLU, and others. And my question to you is, do they play a role in athletics oversight or trying to manage some of these larger, more um, ornery issues that are facing college athletics, or is that just completely out of their wheelhouse? The the organizations that that you mentioned did not uh, play a significant role in college athletics, but have from time to time taken on special projects. Uh, For example, the um, American Council on Education several years ago convened an expert panel uh, looking at academic issues. Uh, And and that would be within their mission to do that. Um, The others from time to time uh, have taken a position on a particular issue, but haven't seen athletics in the in the big way that you're thinking about it as a part of their overall mission. The Association of Governing Boards has an ongoing strand of work about athletics as it relates to trustee roles and that organization has uh, regularly included uh, articles about the trustees roles in athletics 
in their publications and their policy pronouncements. And last year, for example, at their annual meeting, I did a, a workshop, um, a pre-conference workshop on the role of intercollegiate athletics and the trustees' role in um, oversight of athletics. So they have taken on those responsibilities in a, in a, a way that's a bit larger than than some of the others. Uh, the AAU, which is the very elite group of top-tier research universities, has recently indicated that they might want to weigh in on this as well, but it hasn't been something that they've historically done. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. Well, you've, you've had, uh, you've still got a lot of years to go in this, in this analysis of intercollegiate athletics, but what do you know now, today, about athletics that you wish you had known when you became president? That's a question that's often asked, and uh, you know it's it's hard after being a president for nearly twenty years and being in higher education for about fifty years to really go back and and reflect on those times so long ago. I, I suppose what most presidents believe is the the emotion around um, athletics. I mean, certainly there's a lot of emotion around other aspects of university life as well, particularly by those who are deeply engaged in a particular discipline or a particular club or organization. But athletics, because of the position that it has in American society, tends to get even more emotional when there are when there are issues. And I, I already mentioned, you know, sometimes trustees uh, can get more like fans than fiduciaries and have to be coached back to their role. I mentioned uh, my own experience of deleting a program where people who never even went to the event became emotional about it. So I, I imagine most presidents would say that they, just the emotion around issues related to athletics uh, has surprised them somewhat. Absolutely. Well, Carol Cartwright, I, I want to thank you so much for spending a, a few minutes with us, giving us a kind of a global educator view of where this re relationship between presidents and trustees is today and the importance it plays in, in, in steering an institution to living its full mission and values. So thank you so much. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Karen. Thank you. Can you stay with me while I turn this off? Yeah, right. <laughs> That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us for another week of thinking about college athletics from the 30,000 foot perspective. In case this is the first time you are joining us, the podcast drops every Thursday morning. You can listen to previous guests and topics on eight different podcasting platforms, including iTunes and Spotify. Each week, I will strive to give you a deeper understanding of the complexities of higher education and intercollegiate athletics in the 21st century. Please also join me on Forbes.com for additional content and extended analysis. Have a great week.